Welcome to the First Time Facilitator Podcast. Whether you're a first-time facilitator or a seasoned pro, listen in for tips and tricks to make a bigger impact at the next workshop you deliver. And now, your host, her favorite pen is the Papermate Flair, Leanne Hughes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Leanne Hughes, and I'm here to help you host virtual meetings and events. I hope you're keeping safe, eating a variety of food, getting some movement into your day while we navigate this uncertainty and complexity. Hopefully, this is also giving you an opportunity to get stuck into a really good book. Now, last week on the show, I brought on the remote meeting guy. His name is Jonas Rianto in Finland, and his mission is to make telecommuting as natural as working in the same room. This week, I'm keeping the content fresh again. I'm talking to a person who wrote the book about adapting to the moment, and it's called Think on Your Feet, Tips and Tricks to Improve Your Communication Skills on the Job. Now, this book was recently featured at Inc. Magazine as the first of 20 books that will kick off 2020 on the right foot. And look, hopefully we can get it back on the right foot very soon. Now, in this interview, we talked through Jen's pivot into online offerings and how she's running improv workshops using Zoom. She also shares how improv comedy and a background in acting has helped shape her career using the improv phrase, yes, and to keep that conversation going in workshops. We talk about how to engage in small talk at networking events and also in that moment before a workshop when a few of your participants arrive early. Jen became an accidental entrepreneur when she recognized a need for her co-workers at the Guggenheim Museum in New York to spice up their educational tours. Using the acting skills she honed while working off-Broadway, she started The Engaging Educator as a side hustle, which quickly became a full-time gig when national companies took notice of the program's ability to improve their employees' communication, public speaking, and social skills through improv-based education. The Engaging Educator is a women-owned and operated company dedicated to helping people find their unapologetic, authentic, and best voice. Jen Brown's work can be found in publications including Bustle, Fast Company, Forbes, Moneyish, and others. And aside from her entrepreneurial endeavors, she has done three TEDx talks on the power of improv. Jen's personal mission is to empower as many women as possible to stop playing small and know their incredible supernova powers. And she's also based in North Carolina. I hope you enjoy this one. Before we get stuck in, very quick announcement. This show is sponsored by my Zoom virtual practice session. It's called Go Live Before You Go Live. All it is is five of us meet together over an hour and we take turns co-hosting, giving feedback assigning smart, specific instructions, using polls, looking at chat, and just trying to do all the things that you're a bit nervous about. But we do it in a safe environment before you hop on a call with your client. More information, a link to that is in the show notes for this episode. In the show notes, you can also find a link to our free group on Facebook. It's called The Flip Chart. We have over 700 facilitators on there, all sharing amazing tools, knowledge, experience, asking great questions. And if you'd like to contact Jen and find out more about what she does, you can visit the show notes over at firsttimefacilitator.com forward slash episode 113. Now onto the show. I am absolutely delighted to welcome to the First Time Facilitator podcast, Jen Brown. Jen, how are you going today? I'm doing well. How are you? 
really well in Australia. Um, just prior to the to the call, Jen and I had a quick sort of catch up on how we're both progressing during the COVID nineteen situation, and I I thought. Jen is just the perfect guest to have on it at a time like this because you're all about thinking on your feet. But before we really get into that, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit about your career history, some pivots, which led you down to what you're doing today. Absolutely. So I started as a theater and dance major. I was an actor. My undergrad is in theater and dance. And then it was really fun, I realized, until it wasn't. So being an artist in any way, shape, or form is One of those strange and difficult things, I think, that if you love something more than doing that art, you should definitely do it. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, the entire time I was an actor, I really, really focused on teaching as well because I knew that was something that I was interested in doing, whether it be teaching improv classes or teaching some sort of, like, I've always been like a science teacher in some way, shape, or form, teaching anything that I think people found nerve-wracking, I would put the improv spin on it. And that progressed to me becoming a museum educator, which makes sense because you think of museums and institutions as being kind of a scary place for some folks because it's the right or wrong kind of ivory tower of academia. And then after my museum career, I went back into teaching and improv and started my business, The Engaging Educator, in 2012, where now I teach teachers and other folks how to be flexible, how to use improv, how to pivot and use all the skills I think that I've developed through all of my pivots and really kind of put it into a curriculum, if that makes sense. I love the name of your company, The Engaging Educator. And I think it's a question I often get on the show is how do we pivot in the moment? And I think that's probably the scariest part of facilitating versus giving a speech is giving a speech. It's sort of one way facilitating though, you might have just the range of dynamics in a room. So what are some kind of skills or or things from your history in terms of acting and improv that have really steered you well in the world of facilitation now? I think the biggest one, and I think it's the one that a lot of people overlook or think they have a handle on, is really being attentive to that audience. That is the number one tool of any pivot, flexibility, understand what they want, where they're coming from, all of those bits and pieces. And in improv, we we joke sometimes because so often comedy performers, especially, they'll have inside jokes. They'll have things that are funny just for the people on stage. And you can't do that because then you're not paying attention to what your audience wants and needs. And I think that really ties into being a facilitator. If you don't do a quick diagnostic of your audience beforehand of like, who are they? What's their relationship to you? Why are they in the room? Do they have to be there or do they want to be there? What are they looking to get out of this? And what are you looking to give them? And then somehow meeting in the middle. I think that's the best recipe for pivoting. And that's such uh, improv comedy. The idea of listening and responding is all improv is. So by taking that tool and like really checking in with your focus and presence, you can learn how to be a better person in the moment and pivoting in that moment. I've got to ask you with your experience with improv, and this is probably going back a bit of time, but do you remember the first time that you were involved in improv? I did drama in um, part of my high school elective in improv. I was just terrible at it. I would get really nervous. And then once you get nervous, you're stressed, you get very stressed, and then you can't think clearly enough to be in the moment. Were you like that or were you just naturally good at listening, paying attention and pivoting in the moment? 
It's so funny because I've been doing improv since I was 15 and I'm 37 now. So thinking back to that very first time (laughs) I did it, I loved it so much more than being on stage. And I mean, they're both on stage in that sense, but I love the idea of reacting in real time and just being there and being present. And even now, funny story, I'm, I'm in a production of Much Ado About Nothing. I auditioned out of the blue. I was like, oh, this sounds like fun right now. I have time prior to a virus taking over all of any separation of work and home that we had. And I got cast in it as one of the leads. And one of the reasons I think I did so well auditioning and now in it is because of that skill being present and in the moment. That's gold to me. If you give me something super prepared or super overthought, then I get nervous on that if there's too many moving parts. If I just have to be present, then I am so happy. Hey, congrats on getting the lead. What's happening with the play now? Well, we are actually doing an online production tonight is one of, we're probably going to do more of these. We're doing a Zoom stage reading of it. And we were practicing last night till about 11, 1130 at night. And we're just using, we're using the skills that we have. We're using the technology we have, because I think in times like this, like anything we can do to either help or offer some kind of relief to folks that are just feeling confused and isolated. That's the beauty of theater and entertainment and why we're all binging on Netflix shows and things like that, because we need that escape. Absolutely. I'm loving all of the artists that are getting onto Facebook Live, like the Jimmy Fallon. He's doing a lot of live feeds from home. Who else? John Legend. I saw him playing the piano for about an hour the other night. It's so nice to see. And that's so cool that you're doing an online production How are you pivoting things within your own business to deal with what's going on at the moment? It's interesting because late February, a friend of mine who is like an epidemiologist and a disease specialist, she started posting about this virus. And I was like, oh, okay, we got to do something. I've been working on online classes for a while because improv is so interesting because you should be there in front of a person. You should focus on being present and being in the moment. It's really difficult to read about improv and learn how to do it. I wrote a book last year. I know it's hard, but we had already started this pivot into offering more online classes. So when things quite literally hit pretty hard in New York, I canceled before things started getting really bad because one, as a business owner, it was my responsibility to make sure that I was leading by example. Mm -hmm. And two, improv is so close. You touch people, you're next to them, you're breathing the same air. So we've been offering a ton of online classes, both in the sense of webinars that where people can just watch from the comfort of their home. We have some pre-recorded classes that have one-on-one coaching sessions afterwards where they can schedule that coaching session whenever. And then this past weekend, I actually taught a 20-person Zoom improv class. And I'm doing so many more of those in the next upcoming weeks. And, And actually, as long as we need to, because again, I think people need that social interaction. They need that connection. And so we've like heavily discounted because everyone is concerned about money right now and creating something in my house is very different than renting a studio space. So I'm working on like training my facilitators on this online connection and using these technology tools that I've already been playing with for the last year and how we can survive this and continue And I'm not going to lie, it's scary. Anyone that's like, oh, this is a seamless pivot. We're just rolling with the punches. 
that is not at all what's going on over here as an improv person. Like we are rolling with it. We are pivoting. We are also having like a big moment of this is frightening. And sometimes it's okay just to take a break and acknowledge how you're feeling and then move forward. You don't have to constantly be innovating. Like you have to be aware of your own person before you can innovate in a way that is really sustainable, I think. Yeah, I'm the same as you. I think I go between waves of taking, I I could like to call it imperfect action and just trying things out. I think we're all in the same boat. No one really knows what's going to land or will work. And then also balancing, it probably sounds a bit corny, but balancing being a human being versus a human doing, because I'm Mm -hmm. usually stuck in the, the human doing. And when you sort of look at the news and see, look, this this is bigger than my business. This got really big impacts. You look around Europe and, and New York, as you said, it's really quite scary. It's like, sometimes, I don't know if you do this, but I wake up in the morning and I think, oh, it's a normal day. And then I'm like, oh, that's right. We've got this world pandemic going on. <laughs> yes, because we're so used to that habit of getting up, doing our hustle, doing our thing. And then honestly, it's probably why I've been feeling things so strongly and probably why other folks have in that moment of like, oh, this is where I am in the world right now. And this is what's happening around me. And how am I going to react today? Am I going to consume news every five seconds because you need to stay informed? And I put that in quotes. Or are you going to walk away and give your brain a break and give your nervous system a break? Because it's we're still not adjusted to this. And I imagine when we are adjusted to whatever this is, the new normal will start to come out. So it's then it's going to be an entirely new adjustment. So folks that are struggling with change, like I feel you give yourself grace, give yourself space, whatever you have to do, because it is okay that you're scared and you're confused and you're struggling through change. It is okay. Yep. That's again, another mantra of mine is just be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. And even yesterday I was trying to like, I'm like, I've got to do all this stuff. You know, that just that, just that habit that I've built up and I was trying to work on something. I just kept getting distracted and I ended up having like a huge afternoon nap, like the deepest sleep, which really surprised me. But I think, I don't even think our, we're even aware of how exhausting this can be, as you said, on your nervous system as well. Jen, I'm going to have to ask you this question because I'm sure listeners are keen. Just going back to your point, you had 20 people on a Zoom call was this an improv session that you were doing? Yes, it was an How improv did class. You do that because you, you mentioned when you are face to face, you're touching each other, you're breathing the same air. How did you create that experience using Zoom? Oh Lord, breakout rooms! <laughs> I cannot talk enough about breakout rooms. So let me break it down a bit. So in our classes, normally we are very interactive. We're very reflective. Everyone's doing. So in order to create that same experience, I knew I needed, like, like this is going to sound like an ad for Zoom, I knew I needed a platform where you could be interactive, where you could see one another, and you also had that ability to go into smaller groups when necessary. So we would stay in the larger group. I would model the activity with the larger group, so call on a few folks. Then I would send them out to breakout rooms, and they would be doing the activity in those breakout rooms. Then we came back from those breakout rooms and reflected on how that felt, what they learned, what that was all about. And I was, I'm going to be honest, I was blown away because sometimes when we're doing takeaways, like for example, there's an activity that really taps into your active listening where you use the last word of a previous sentence as the first word of your response. So instead of being very automated in your response or answering the question before it's even done being asked, someone might say, oh, I love nachos. And the response might be, nachos are fantastic. 
fantastic foods happen when you think. So that was one of the activities they were working on. And they came back in and they were like, this was so hard. I'm used to forming my answer while they're talking. They hit all of those takeaway points. So I don't know if the medium actually helped with that realization because they didn't feel like they were being watched by other groups. They had this little tiny pod of three or four people together that were doing this activity and reflecting on it and able to laugh about themselves and the outcome of the activity. It was strangely like phenomenal and freeing and just very exciting. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you brought up that I haven't really considered yet. Because you're right, when you do break out into groups, but you're all still under the same roof, you are still influenced by what other groups are doing. Like you're looking at the other group to see what the norm is. But Mm -hmm. if you're in your own breakout room, that isn't a thing. So wow, all your different breakout rooms might be having a completely different experience. Interesting. And it's a question I'm asking at the moment, because I think everyone's going, oh, how do I move what I do offline, online. But one of my uh, previous guests, Wonder, he said, the question you should be asking is, how do you make the online experience much better than it would have been if it was offline? And I think you've just given us the tool there in terms of the breakout rooms and the different types of learning and also brought up active listening. So I don't know how often you're on Zoom calls. I had had, um, a crazy week of Zoom calls last week and I was exhausted. And I was wondering what that was. And I think it's because you actually have to pay even more attention now Mm -hmm. when you're in a Zoom room, like even just to, like even in your facial expressions to show someone that you are listening. Are you finding that as part of your experience? Mm -hmm. And then that idea of even your micro expressions are showing because it's video. In that sense, I've been doing a lot of like thinking about how to make the Zoom experience or the online experience, quote unquote, better, or at least as good as the in-person. Like I've been doing a lot of one-on-one coaching, if even if they're taking a pre-recorded class and you can see these micro expressions, like your face tells no lies when you're just staring at your face. Mm-hmm. We're so used to paying attention to like body language and cadence comes across how our voices move, comes across definitely through Zoom meetings, but it is exhausting to be on for any period of time. And that's why when folks are like, oh, I have such a hard time paying attention sometimes, it's like, well, because it's a choice. You can't just pay attention. You're thinking of 20 other things. And now you're thinking of 20 other things, plus potential grief, impending doom, like like no jokes (laughs) on that. It's scary. I laugh about it. I'm like, well, it's nice to be in the apocalypse right now. But at the same time, like everything is changing and the world is not going to be the same when we come out of all of this. So that is weighing on a lot of people while we find our footing again. So that plus attention, plus focus, plus already Zoom, video, phone, it's a dampening medium. Mm -hmm. So in order to get across the same sense of passion and excitement, you have to put so much more energy into it. So no wonder you're exhausted. I feel the same. I've had more video calls in the last week and a half that I think been in the past year, which has been wild. Yeah. And I've got a few lessons even from last week and a good friend, she goes, Leanne, you wouldn't have scheduled seven hours of face-to-face meetings in a day. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I think just because it was easy. And I I don't know, like particularly at this moment, I'm finding it's really important to stay connected and, and just talk to people. And I probably... We always sort of de- revert to our default when we're under stress and mine is I'm a bit of an extrovert so I like talking to people but on my last call 
I was hungry. I was tired. I really wasn't. You said making a choice to be present. I was sort of checking out in that moment because I just didn't have the fuel or the energy. What have you sort of learned about managing your energy from your week of Zoom calls as well? Same thing, I guess. I know I need to take care of myself. I A lot of therapy has taught me that. So I can't say I came to that on my own. I even had my therapy session on telehealth. So it's like an online platform where you do like You see your therapist. It's kind of like Zoom video, but it's a secure network, I think. Not that Zoom isn't secure, but it's a special like doctor network here. And I think the biggest thing I realized was I need to give myself space. Like you just said, I would have never scheduled seven in-person meetings. I would never schedule this many back-to-back meetings in real life because I can't talk to people that much. That's exhausting. And so I think it's giving myself that break, making sure to eat, walking my dogs, taking a moment for me. I think when we work from home, even if we're used to working from home, we need to learn how to separate work time and personal time. Mm -hmm. Like I know I worked more last week than I have in the past many, many weeks, only because there was no break. There was no transition of, okay, let me get in my car and drive home or let me walk to lunch or let me go do this thing that would normally break up a work day. So I think that that taking that time to give yourself that transition time, I think is the biggest thing that I learned last week was like, how am I going to build in transitions, even if I'm just transitioning from work to making dinner or work to walking my dogs? And even though I'm not driving somewhere, like that transition time is a brain break and it is some space that you need to take in order to give yourself that, that moment to kind of stay away from constantly working or constantly be on or constantly checked in because that's just going to be exhausting. Yeah. Thank you for talking about transitions. And how good is it having a dog during this time? I'm so pleased. I've got my two dogs. They're actually probably happy that I'm at home all the time. So I think they're a little weirded out. I don't know about your dogs. Yeah, I think they are a bit like, you know, particularly because during the day they probably just sleep, but I'm now like, hey, let's go for a midday walk now because I just want to get out and about. Mm -hmm. Same. We're like going to do stuff. And I think it's, I definitely think it's weirding my dogs out that we're, (laughs) my husband and I are both home and I've worked at home once in a while. I I go to a co-working space a lot of time, but we have two dogs as well. And they're like, did you guys get fired? Like, why are you (laughs) home right now? We're trying to sleep. Can you please be quiet? And so I think their schedules are all upended in all sorts (laughs) of ways because same thing, they're used to taking that nap during the day and they cannot. (laughs) No, no, no. But I also, what I love about them is their just complete lack of awareness of what's going on. And I, I just love that. I think they're just like, yeah, life's just normal. And it's nice to be around by, you know, the, with that company. So let's talk about preparation. So I'm sure you did some things before you um, went into the Zoom session, but like just in general as well, including your face-to-face workshops. How do you personally prepare? I know that you like being in the moment, but I'm sure there's a lot of preparation that you do that enables you to be present and pivot. So how do you prepare for workshops, say like a month out or even the day of a workshop? Yeah, absolutely. So if it's in advance in any sort of time, as opposed to day of, I'm constantly over planning. I think that's one of the things that people miss about even improvisers or folks that are more think on your feet, that sort of vibe. Like I still over plan. I give extra content. If I'm doing a four hour workshop, I'll probably plan about six hours worth of content because that way I can seem more flexible 
And that sense, like that way I'm really paying attention to my audience. So if they're nailing a concept or they're doing really great at something, then I can move on to the next one a bit quicker. On the flip side, if they need a little extra, then I will definitely dive into more of a scaffolded activity, something that might build that skill a little slower than what I originally planned. And that's always been my strategy as a teacher, whether I was teaching like informal science education, when I was teaching at museums, I would always over-prepare because then I could really ebb and flow with my audience. So I think that's something that, that people are like, oh, you just go with the flow. And I'm like, my flow is bigger than your flow. <laughs> and that's so huge because if you have just a tiny little box you're playing in, you don't have a lot of room for flexibility. On the other hand, if you build yourself this larger box, then you've got all of this space to be flexible and all of this room to kind of go left or right or up or down. And it looks like you're just going with the flow. In reality, your structure is just larger than most people's. Mm -hmm. And on that day of presentation, even before this, like I'm always doing some tongue twisters beforehand so I don't trip over my words. I'm shutting off distractions like there's no social media going on in the background. There's no extra links. It's just me and the microphone and listening to you. And that's how I am when I'm teaching too, because it's, it's like, you can't, we can't multitask. It's impossible. And if we think we can, we're not doing it well. So it's that, that taking that time to be like, you know what, for the next chunk of time, I am dedicating my energy and my focus on this particular conversation. I think that's something that we don't always check our stuff at the door. So it's always like, all right, like there's a lot of stuff going on, no matter what's going on in my life right now, this is the moment that I'm paying attention to. Yes. It's definitely like compartmentalizing a lot of the stuff when you're in the workshop room. And I think, um, I guess it comes with experience as well. I know certainly when I was first facilitating right at the beginning, like five or six years ago, I was so distracted, fixing all my slides, making sure the room was right, but also not really paying attention to my participants when they walked in because I wanted to make everything perfect. I, I'm of the same camp as you. I love over-preparing. And thank goodness through experience, you learn what things work. And I don't know about you, but I've got like props. I just carry like tennis balls and things around just in case, just mm-hmm. in case I need, I need to use them. You need to. That over-prep is so critical because if you over-prep, then you're prepared for anything. And there's still going to be stuff that throws you for a loop If you have those extra things, though, then you don't have to worry about like, oh, man, I wish I would have had this extra thing. Absolutely right. And I think it's also just a personal reassurance thing that you know that if you do have to pivot, you're ready for it. And I think just even having that sort of self-assurance is is really helpful. So the other thing that you talk about, Jen, is um, improv in the context of networking, which I find really interesting because a lot of us go to networking events and... I don't know, people hear the word networking and it's not the favourite word. You usually hear a few groans. And you talk about small talk as well and how to be really effective at doing that. So let's talk about small talk in the context of a workshop where you're the facilitator, you're meeting some new clients, they're coming in, a lot of them are in there early. How do you engage with the participants before you even officially begin your workshop? Yeah, so small talk, I think, is one of those things that we all have our own reactions to, and I personally love it. And now I think that there is science out there on why I particularly love it, because I'm never one of those people that's going to ask you the weird question of like, 
what movie would you be if you were a movie? Or if you were a jelly bean flavor, what flavor would you be? (laughs) I think those are questions that like freak me out. And I'm a creative person Mm -hmm. because I think they're too, they're too in your face. They're too upfront. A recent study out of Harvard said like the best way to have small talk is to ask questions and not ask weird like jelly bean flavor questions, but get someone talking and ask questions about what they're saying. And that's always been my mantra for small talk is this idea of like ask curiosity questions, ask what someone does. Don't interrogate them in the sense, what do you do? How much do you make? What year did you do this one thing with your career? Really ask them. So what brought you here? And then whatever they're saying, listen for something in improv we call a gift. So it's a bit of information that you can use in your response, that you can use in a question. So again, I always go to nachos. So if I say, oh, well, I was like, if someone asked me like, what were you doing earlier today? Oh, well, I had some really good nachos. They're like, oh, well, what did you put on your nachos? You see, you're asking a question based off of something I said, showing that I'm listening, but then also showing a genuine interest in what's going on in my world and my life. And I think that's how I've always approached networking and small talk before classes is just chatting with someone and not being like, oh, nice weather today, or oh, it's awfully cold or rainy, or how about that virus? It's more like, <laughs> like, how are you doing? Like, why are you here? What brought you here? And asking questions based on their answers. And that I think that takes away some of the panic of small talk. It also makes it a bit harder for folks that have trouble listening, but it makes it so much more personal because then you can ask questions about what you actually care about as opposed to some weird topic that you read in a small talk list of 30 topics to use small talk for. Yeah, it's like that weather question. I know the weather's not the best thing to talk about, but somehow I I do find myself talking about the weather and I know that I'm not engaged in the conversation. They know they're not engaged. We all know, but no one's calling it out. So I think I do sometimes use improv just to shift the weather to something else in the moment because we all know that the weather is, look, it's a nice maybe entry point, but it needs to pivot away from that. I've got a Facebook group of facilitators and a question that popped up the other week that I think you might have some good, helpful tips for is when you're in a workshop, you've asked a question and there's two responses you might get. One is that someone doesn't actually respond to the question. They bring up another point or their response really it just isn't on track at all. How do you manage that if that happens in a workshop? Are there some tools from improv that you can use to pivot direction again or what would you do? Yeah. Yeah. If someone, so, so if someone, if you ask a question and you get something completely like off the wall or off topic or not necessarily what you're looking for, first off afterwards, definitely reflect and think about like, should that have been a question? If you have a specific answer you're looking for, that's a big, possibly me thing that if I'm looking for a certain answer, then I'll be like, all right, why did I ask that question? Why didn't I just make the statement as opposed to asking them to come to that conclusion? Mm -hmm. Now, if it is an open-ended question and they're going like Sue left field on it, then there's always the idea of being like using the yes and philosophy of saying like, yes, nachos are definitely something. I'm I'm very obsessed with nachos, generally (laughs) speaking, but clearly today. Yes, nachos are a great facilitation tool. And I'm curious if you can think of some other facilitation tools, or then you're kind of guiding it with the and, as opposed to like, you're affirming what you just heard. You're saying like, yes, you think this is 
your answer. Yes, you just said this. Yes, you believe this. And then you're you're giving it equal footing with you'd like more answers. You'd like to open this up to more conversation. Because if it's also something that you're completely confused with at that same time, you can say, yes, that's a really good idea. And can you tell me more about what makes you think that? So that can you tell me more or opening it up to other folks? Like, tell me more about this answer. You can get a bit more clarity on where that person's coming from. I think it's always good to assume good intent. Like as someone who's worked in major museums, like I worked at the Met for a really long time, we would always get people that would think that they knew more about art than we did as educators. And sometimes they did. And rarely were they trying to trick us or trap us and not knowing something. So I think it's it's always fascinating to find out why that person answers the way that they do. And the only way you can do that is ask for more information. So that might open up a better conversation than you were expecting by just getting a little bit more insight. I think that's really powerful. That's just adjusting the yes, but to the yes and to enable and to find out more as well. So I'm curious with at the Met, because I do also get facilitators who get stuck in a bit of imposter syndrome, thinking that they need to be the subject matter expert. They need to know all the information. And if someone else knows more, that can be a little bit intimidating. So how did you, you mentioned a few things. So you'd use questions to find out a bit of context from where the person was coming from when you had someone that had a lot of knowledge in those group settings. Is there anything else that you did to manage, I guess, people that were highly academic or had a lot more experience in particular areas than you did when you were doing those tours? Oh, yeah. Like, I never am the expert. Like, I know that. Even with improv, I know a lot. But in the sense of someone thinking that they they have nothing else to learn, then no one really is that person because I feel like every field is ever changing. Like even math, I know a mathematician who just discovered something I couldn't get into detail because I don't understand math in this way, but she just discovered something in math. And I'm like, wow, it really is like every field is constantly changing. So I view myself very different as I'm not the subject matter expert. I'm a facilitator of learning things and seeing things in a very different way. So my goal always with any group, even with EE now, is I want you to be more curious and more aware than you were when you walked in. And whatever that looks like, for me, that's something that I can achieve. That's something that success is kind of built in with that because I can get folks to look a little differently. I can get folks to ask themselves questions about maybe a subject using the Met as an example, a painting that they think they know the entire history of. Just give them a tiny bit of a different view on it or ask them a question that they maybe haven't thought about then I've accomplished my goal. So I think my goals are very different than than thinking I have to constantly teach someone. I think I'm definitely more of a facilitator of learning and experiences. And I even think that with EE, because people still surprise me when they come out of an improv activity and they're like, oh, this this happened. And I'm like, you know what? In in eight years and over 50,000 students, I've never heard that. (laughs) And that happens monthly still where I'm just like blown because we're all different. We're all bringing different experiences. And I think giving yourself that grace that, no, you're not the end all information. You have things to learn still. You have things to discover. And going into things with a curiosity, I think, is far better than going into things of I am a keeper of knowledge and I'm going to give you lots of knowledge where you will be happy with my knowledge. It's different. 
Yeah, it is different. And I think, I guess the reason why I love facilitating is because that very reason that you'll never have the same experience twice, even if the content is the same, it's the different people, the environment, the context just makes it every day pretty unpredictable, which is why um, facilitation definitely suits me. Mm -hmm, So so you've trained over 50,000 people. That's absolutely incredible. Do you have a favorite icebreaker or energizer or activity that you throw down in your workshop? Something that's pretty robust that you, you just works every time. It's so funny. It's one that I actually can't do in any of these online sessions. So it's kind of killing me a tiny bit, but I'm thinking about how to adapt it. Like I think I can do it. And a lot of people play it. It's a activity called a zip, zap, zop. And you pass information to one another using the word zip, zap, zop. And when you make a mistake, most people have learned they have to sit out or they don't get to play anymore. But the way we do it, when you make a mistake, you all put your hands on your hips and you all together do a hip thrust and say, ah, And And it's, it's so funny because I do it with every single class that I'm working on how to adapt it for the Zoom groups in the sense of it, it really lowers people's fear of failure because as adults, especially, we're so scared of making a mistake. We're so scared of looking wrong or looking silly. And it's like that keeps us playing things so safe. So we can't succeed because we're constantly trying not to fail. Now, what Zip Zap Zap does, it's like, all right, you're going to fail. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to make a funny noise. And you're going to hip thrust in a group of people that you may or may not know. So get over yourself. And that activity, I can't think of a single group in person that I haven't done that with because it's so leveling the playing field. Like it just takes folks from whatever level they're at, whatever fear they're at, whatever sense of, oh, I can do this. This is easy. And just brings them down to reality mm-hmm. in such a quick way. And then it breaks, it breaks the ice. Like it makes people laugh at themselves, which I think is critical. Yeah, I even feel like if I was playing the game, I'd kind of want to make a mistake. So we'd all have to do a hip thrust, like I'd mm-hmm. intentionally stuff up because it would, it sounds really funny. And if you do find a way of making that go virtual, uh, please let us know. And if I get ideas as well, I'll shoot them through on how you can make that happen. I'd love to see it. I will, it for sure. I, <laughs> I think I'm close. So I'll probably end up emailing you now that my brain is consistently working on it yeah. of like, okay, how can I do this? <laughs> Oh, so exciting. Jen, if our listeners would love to reach out to you and find out more about what you do, uh, check out some of your online offerings now, where can we send them? I think the best way to find me is jenbrown.co. That's J-E-N, brown like the color, dot C-O. And that actually links to everything I do. So it links to the engaging educator. It links to the stuff I've written, my social media handles. If you want to hop on theengagingeducator.com, you're more than welcome to. That's also linked in jenbrown.co. It's just a nice little landing page with all the things. That's such a good idea because I know I'm certainly sending people off to different channels. So it's nice that you've got one page where, which has all those links. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for your time, particularly doing during moments like this. It's just the perfect time to talk to you about pivoting and thinking on our feet as all of us are currently going through that right now. So Jen, really appreciate you having you on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around. You've reached the end of another episode of the First Time Facilitator podcast. Connect with the show at firsttimefacilitator.com or follow me on Instagram at Leanne Hughes to find out what I'm up to during the week. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with someone who will also appreciate the insight and make it easier for yourself and subscribe to the show in your podcast player of choice. 
Thank you so much for listening and chat to you next week.